We shall turn now to the portion of God's Word read, the book of the Revelation, chapter 16. We shall read from verse 1 just now. Revelation 16, verse 1. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Go your ways is the message now to these seven angels that we have met with previously, standing, waiting in preparation for the service that was ordained to them. And in the appointed time, the voice comes from out of the heavenly temple, from the holiest, as we said last, uh, the last time we were in Revelation, from the holiest place in the universe, the holy, the heavenly, holy of holies. And out of that temple, filled with the glory of God, this voice addresses these seven angels, these seven servants of God, and they are directed now to go forth and to pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. No human intellect can possibly grasp or comprehend the fullness of the extent of divine wrath. We're talking here of something that can only be understood in reality as it is experienced. No man, no creature is capable of defining or fully describing what is here before us, the pouring out of the seven vials or bowls of the wrath of God upon this earth. What we're talking about in this chapter is the very earth that you and I are living upon. Man and woman of flesh and blood like ourselves. It is a most solemn, solemn chapter. So solemn that many consider it to be the most difficult chapter in the whole book to properly explain. But we shall endeavor to explain in the light of what we've already learned and in the light of what we are taught from the rest of Scripture, what is here being presented to us. We have in the past considered the, the seven seals that were opened, opening up the purposes of God to be fulfilled in history, the seven trumpets that were sounded, and as they were sounded, 
fearful plagues fell upon the human race. But now we are coming to see something even more spectacular. The pouring out of seven vials of wrath that have been prepared by God, but have been prepared in a peculiar way. What you will find again and again throughout Scripture, and indeed in the experiences of men is this, that their very own wicked and sinful deeds actually produce the punishment for their deeds. You see this again and again. And when we go back to the chapter 14, we read there in verse 19, the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now grapes are cast into a winepress to produce wine. They are pressed there to produce wine. And we have many references in the scriptures to the cup, the wine cup of divine wrath. Now here we have the angel reaping in this earth wicked men, and it's as though their wickedness with their, de- their deeds is cast into this uh, great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. There you see the place where the wrath of God is being prepared, as it were. It is being prepared in this wine press, and the grapes of divine wrath are being trodden, but they are being trodden outside the city, the very place where the Savior was crucified where he received willingly the wrath of God against the sins of his people. There you see the opening of the divine winepress of God against sin, but here it falls on the head of his own beloved son, the sin-bearer. But, of course, we have to understand that there are many, and they reject Christ. They reject his atonement. They reject him as a substitute. And so the wrath of God abides upon them. And that wrath is being stored up to be poured upon them. Their rejection of Christ means that the divine wrath of God abides upon them. It hasn't been moved unto Christ. It abides in them. Now, in this chapter 16, here we see the wrath of God being poured out 
upon the earth, upon the seas, into the air. In every way, men are going to be affected by the outpourings of divine wrath. Now we are making progress through the book of the Revelation and uh, we are aware, as you've heard me say, there are different schools of interpretation, basically <coughs> four particular schools, although sometimes there's overlapping and then there's some specific teachings within a particular school of interpretation. There are, of course, the preterists who believe that the majority of everything in this book was fulfilled in the first century, and the very little of it was left to be fulfilled in the future. Then there's, of course, the futurist who believes that the majority of everything that we have in the book was actually to be fulfilled somewhere away in the future, while There were messages to the seven churches, contemporary churches. Majority of everything there is for the future. And then there is the historicist who believes that what is written in the book of the Revelation basically covers the history of the church and the world from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And then, of course, there is the school of the idealist who believes that the scriptures are being fulfilled to a larger extent. When we come to Revelation, we find that much of it has already been predicted in the Old Testament. And you see, as it were, how in the Old Testament we're actually introduced to the workings of God for the future, and so on. Now, of course, there are diversities, as you would expect, in the way the book is going to be interpreted. But there is one thing that every school of interpretation has in common, and that is this, that whatever way they apply the contents historically, every school of interpretation does believe this. The book of the Revelation does draw our attention to the end times and the second coming of Christ. They'll all agree in that. Whatever else they disagree on, They will all agree here, certainly in the book of the Revelation. We are told, we are being warned that the Lord is coming again and that he who was crucified and died and was buried and rose again, that he is to return. And we are being warned in this book of the very end times when he will return for his church. And as we proceed and we come to the latter chapters of this book, it is inescapable 
that we have to face something of what is going to take place as history is coming to an end. Our history, and let's be absolutely honest, although people don't want to think about it, even the scientist knows this world isn't going to last. However long they think it might last, they know it's never going to last indefinitely. There will come a day when it will be ended. There will come a day when God will not need it anymore. It won't have any more purpose in his eternal purpose. And in this chapter, we see something of the fearful response of ungodly society to God's dealings in his sovereignty with them. We come to see what's really in the heart of man. But we see how long-suffering, how patient, how compassionate God is. Now, previously we've seen these uh, angels in readiness to go in the service of God, directing them from the throne of the uh, tabernacle to pour out their vials of wrath. But you see, before God does this, because he is long-suffering and because it is not his will that any should perish, but that all should repent and turn to him, he sends forth seven trumpets of warning. Now you go back to the chapters 8 to 11 through, you see each one of these trumpets sounding, and then you see what follows in the experience of man, the sounding of that trumpet. You have uh, the uh, chapter 8, and you have there the angels going out with their trumpets, verse 7, the first angel sounded, and there followed heel and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth. And the third part, note that, the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. Now it's important to see when the trumpets were sounded and judgments fell, they were not complete. They were not entire. You read down through that chapter because we've mentioned it previously, repeatedly, a third part, a third part, a third part. There was a limitation. God put a limitation upon the particular judgments to be experienced by men. When we come now to chapter 16, it isn't a third anymore. It's somewhat very different. But the trumpets, you see, were warning. You go back in the Old Testament 
to the book of Exodus, chapter uh, 19, and you'll see there God directing Moses to make uh, trumpets, and they were made for a divinely appointed purpose. You find in chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 16, it came to pass on the third day in the morning, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. You see, this trumpet was blown to assemble the people to meet with God. Now, you can perfectly understand that. I remember as a boy, uh, I could often hear Sabbath mornings, you would hear three, four miles away, the church bells ringing, the various towns calling the people to worship. Now, they had watches and clocks, but that was an ancient way of calling the people and telling them it was time for the worship or to prepare to go to the public worship. And it is perfectly understandable when God will have all the assembly of Israel to come before him that a trumpet sounds to tell them, inform them, it is time now for you to assemble to meet with God. And this is what happens, and we're told that uh, they came before God, verse 18, Mount Sinai was altogether in a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in a fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mind quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice, and so on. Now here are the children of Israel, and they are becoming aware in their in their lives of the importance of the sounding of the trumpet. It had to do with God. They weren't searing the sound of the trumpet, uh, calling them to engage in their own activities day by day, interfering with their routine. No, they understood that trumpet means God is present. That trumpet tells us, informs us of the mighty, fearful presence of God. The people trembled. They understood it as a solemn thing to appear in the presence of Jehovah God. Now, again, there are different references to the trumpets and the use of them, but if you go with me over to Numbers chapter 10, you will see there God telling Moses what these trumpets are to be made of and what they are to be used for. 
the Lord speak, verse 1 of Numbers 10, unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver. Of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. So it were these trumpets would make different sounds, and the children of Israel would be able to discern what that sound means, what that particular sound is directing us to do. And we're told, verse 3, when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow but with one trumpet, then the princes, which are heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto ye, thee. Verse 5, when ye blow an alarm, then the camps that lie in the east parts shall go forward. Go down to verse 9, and if ye go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and ye shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. Now you see the importance of what is stated there. The trumpets blown in the camp of Israel at different times had a very great significance. On the part of the Israelites, it had a significance. But also in the part of God, it had a great significance. When the children of Israel hear it, it's calling them to assemble either before the God, uh, before God, or to assemble to move camp, or to assemble to go out to war. It was conveying a message to them. But in addition, God says, while you're assembling, while you're responding to the sound of the trumpet, I will also respond to it. And when ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and ye shall be remembered before the Lord, I have appointed that trumpet. When you hear it, you will know whatever the power and the strength of the enemy that you're going out against, I will remember you. That trumpet will sound in my ears as it sounds in yours. So you see the trumpet, remember who John is? He's the last of the apostles. He's familiar with the scriptures of the Old Testament, with the law and the testimony. And he knows in his own mind the significance of God's trumpets. He were not talking here about trumpets of the Greeks or the trumpets of the Romans. 
These trumpets are God's trumpets. They're appointed by him. And he has, from a way back in the Old Testament, informed his people as to the significance of the trumpet and its sound. And when we come to Revelation and seven angels go out with their seven trumpets and they blow them, the enemies of God and of Christ have reason to tremble because God is going to afflict them in his power. But he's going to remember, and we've already seen this, He's going to remember his church. He's going to remember his poor people in the midst of it. They've all been marked, as we've noted. They've all been marked as his to be preserved, to be kept. And the trumpets, you see, when they sound, they are a warning to men. But they are a memorial before God. Now in the prophecy of Ezekiel, you have there in the chapter 33 a very, very significant record of the mind of God as to one of the purposes of the blowing of the trumpet is appointed by himself. In the chapter 33, of uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is here recording what the Lord has to say to him. Son of man, verse 2, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, when I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, if When he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people. Then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul, and so on. So you can see here that God is speaking very clearly to the prophet and through the prophet to the people of the trumpet issuing a warning of impending danger and judgment. And that those who do not pay any attention to the warning, their blood is upon their own heads. They refused to listen to the warning. They've been warned. But they refuse to pay any attention. They carry on and they go their own way. And in the end... The judgment falls upon them and they've no excuse. God says it's their own making, it's of their own making, it's their own fault. They brought it upon themselves. I warned them, 
The watchman warned them they wouldn't listen, their blood be upon their own heads. Now what has God done in the book of the Revelation? Seven trumpets have sounded. And as they have sounded, plagues and judgments have fallen upon men. These are warnings. God is just warning them. This is a little bit of what my wrath can do. This is just a foretaste. This is just a limited addition, as it were, of my wrath. Men ought to take warning. But they don't. When we come to chapter 16, now the wrath of God is going to be poured out in a very different way and to a far greater extent. And let's look and see what happens when God's wrath is poured out. I wonder, does our society believe in the wrath of God? Well, of course, if you don't believe in God, why would you even believe in his wrath? But there are many and they tell us, oh yes, I believe in God, all right. But after all, he's a God of love. And God wouldn't punish people the way the Old Testament prophets said he would. God doesn't punish sin now to the extent he used to do it. When God punished sin in the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath then, but through Jesus Christ, he's not like that anymore. And now, you see, he loves sinners. He doesn't punish sin anymore. It's all been punished in Christ, and that's it. Now we've got a universal redemption. In this book of the Revelation, we are confronted with the wrath of God at different times, expressed to different extents. And here it is in this chapter. Now, we read the first verse 2 of chapter 16, went and poured out his vile Upon the earth. Now here you are and I are upon the earth. We're not told. It's interesting you go through the scriptures and you will find in the Old Testament particularly the prophets, the authors of the various historical events, they might say something like this. In the fourth year, in the seventh month, on the fourteenth day, such and such a thing took place. And you will see phrases like that again and again, and the prophets expressing, so that you have these points in time where we can figure out when certain events took place. And you might read, it came to pass on such and such a year, 
and such and such a month and such and such a day, the Lord spoke or the Lord moved or this event took place or that. So you have these reference points that you can work out when something happened or when something is likely to happen. Daniel in Babylon, he was able to read the writings of Jeremiah and from the writings of Jeremiah he could see our captivity in Babylon is coming gradually to an end. Seventy years are being accomplished. You have in Isaiah, in the sixth chapter, Isaiah stating, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And all we have to do is discover what year did King Uzziah died. That's the year that Isaiah saw the Lord at this great vision of God and so on. Now, when we come to the New Testament and to the ministry of the Savior, you will find on different occasions that he said to his disciples about certain things. For example, in the Gospel according to John, chapter 13, and again in chapter 14, you will see that Jesus, for example, In John 13, verse 19, Now I tell you, before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am. You see a similar statement in chapter 14. And you have in Luke chapter 24, another statement from the Savior, uh, similarly, Uh, drawing attention to the fact that without giving any precise time, what he was saying is this. When it happens, only then will you know it has happened. I'm not predicting a time or a date or a day or an hour But when it happens, you will know that my word that I told you has now been fulfilled. Now you and I know perfectly well that when we read here of seven angels blowing seven trumpets, we cannot see them. We cannot hear them. This is a spiritual activity, but it is a very definite activity. We can neither see the seven angels pouring out the seven vials of their wrath. Nobody can tell us when the first vial is poured out or the second, or the third, or the fourth, or any of them. How then will we ever know when they've actually been poured out? Well, look where they're poured out. Onto the earth. 
man on the earth will know. They will know something's going on. Furthermore, they will be forced to recognize it is God who's behind it. Or oh, they can't look up and say, I see a mighty angel. The heavens are opened and there's a mighty angel with a massive vial of wrath and he's just pouring it down now upon us. You know and I know, even the children know. That's not going to be. But how will we know when the wrath of God is descended? We will know by its consequences. We will know when we experience that wrath. And here in this chapter 16, we are shown what to expect. And when we look around in our world today, we have to believe that the vials of divine wrath are already being poured upon us. Let men argue what way they will. You cannot look at our society and believe for one moment that it is rapidly changing. It is rapidly changing. It is drastically changing and it's going downhill socially and morally and spiritually at a rapid rate. And it isn't just confined to one little corner, a third of the, of the earth. It has become universal. Now let's see what the response of heaven is to the wrath of God. We're told the first angel, verse 2, poured out his vial of wrath upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. These are religious people upon whom this wrath is poured. But their religion and their worship is false, as we've already seen in the past. But then the second angel, verse 3, poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul in the sea or died in the sea. Now you go back to the Old Testament, to the plagues in Egypt, and you can see there we're introduced, as it were, to the power of God, what God can do, and how it affects men. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. Now there are those who will interpret these words literally, and there are those who believe they are symbolically interpreted. I believe that when we read Scripture, both are applicable. There is the symbolic significance because it's spiritual activity, it's the work of God. But there is also the literal 
interpretation because the events are intended by God to affect the lives of men in the earth. And when it speaks of diseases affecting men as plagues for their sin, all you have to do is think of the worldwide plague of AIDS. What does that result from? That is the result of men's evil, wicked, depraved lifestyles. And God sends the plague of his punishment. And it's universal. That's just by the way. Verse 5 of this chapter. Listen. How different it is to a lot of the so-called theology of the liberals and the modernists today. Even sadly some wishy-washy evangelicals. Verse 5. I heard the angel of the waters. Now the Jews, of course, they believed that there were uh, numerous angels that had particular guardianships over certain aspects of creation. And here you have the reference to the angel of the waters overlooking and overseeing the waters and so on. What does he say when the, when the third angel pours out the vial of his wrath? Does he raise his hands to object? Do we have a confrontation between the angel with the vial, the third vial, and the angel of the waters, do we find there in confrontation? Not at all. The angel of the waters is heard to say this, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. Thou art righteous because this judgment from God is a righteous judgment. Thou art righteous because thou hast judged thus. All men will throw up their arms and object and say, God is a hard God. God is a heartless God. To do anything like this to poor men. And I don't want to be misunderstood nor misinterpreted. But you look around this great island of Australia. Look at the various sufferings that men and women and families are experiencing here and there. Fire, drought, and whatever. Is God behind it? Does he control it? Are men repenting and calling in God? God's ignored. Yes, there will be the individual here and there calling in God, but to a large extent, 
There's nothing of that. God's sending warnings to Australia. He's been sending warnings to the inhabitants of Australia because Australians have departed from God. They've forsaken the law of God. And you think of it, since this, since the Parliament of Australia passed the law and uh, introduced same-sex marriage, made it legal, and now other states are moving to abort more millions of unborn children, and on it goes, legislation following legislation, in defiance of God's laws. And you think God just goes to sleep, isn't interested, just denies his own character, denies his own laws, when these things are happening. Whose voice is ever to state what this angel stated? Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. Verse 6. Here's the reason the angel is saying it, that they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Note those words. They are worthy. To put it into our modern-day terminology, they deserve it. That's really what the angel is saying. They deserve it. This is a judgment from God that is deserved. God is perfectly just. He's not being hard. He's being just. Verse 7. I heard another out of the altar say. Now what is the law? You've heard me refer to it at different occasions. In the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. That was the law in Israel. Jesus confirmed it. Now here is another voice, not just one. This is not just a single individual angel's opinion. I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Confirming these judgments falling on the earth, these judgments descending on men are deserved judgments because of their sin. They are worthy. They deserve it. Now we are not told whether these angels poured out their vials consecutively, whether they were 
poured out at any particular times, whether they were poured out together or a number of them together, we know they were poured out. They descended from God, judgments from God. Now when God has warned them, the trumpets have sounded, that God is present, God is revealing his mighty power. The trumpets have been sounded to warn men of what is yet to come if they don't repent. Oh, my dear friends, you young people, any of you at all, you have not repented of your sins, you better listen. And you better take heed. You see that every exhortation in the book of the Revelation, every one of them, when God calls to repentance, every one of those calls is to the seven churches in Asia. The first that God calls to repentance is his church his people. And if they will not repent, there's no repentance there, what are we going to expect out there in the ungodly world? What do they know of repentance? If the very church that is the witness to them refuses to repent, what can we expect from the poor, lost, ungodly? Repentance is required because of disobedience. Repentance is required because of rebellion against God. Now, what did God do in back in the early chapters of Revelation in the chapter 2? You have one incident where this woman Jezebel was teaching in the church in Thyatira. And God calls, or Christ calls, the church in Thyatira to repent because of this. But he also gave her time to repent. I give her space to repent. You see, God requires repentance of every one of us. And he gives us space or he gives us time to repent. He gives us space and time in our lives. How long suffering? Rejecting the gospel year after year after year. And God doesn't cast the impenitent sinner out of his sight immediately and into a lost eternity. No, he gives space and time to repent. And that's what God did. The seven trumpets were sounded, but they will not repent. And you think of it, we go back to creation, 
God created everything and could look upon it and say, it's very good. It's very good. He created everything in order, everything in its place, everything in harmony. But man brought sin into it and brought the curse of God upon his very own habitation. And he is responsible for marring God's creation. He is responsible for bringing God's justified anger upon his sin. And the whole of creation groans. Wasn't groaning in the Garden of Eden. God's creation was not groaning until sin came in. And now the whole of creation groans because of sin. Who hears the groans? It is God the Creator. And yet, though guilty man has done so much to God's creation, bringing sin in, bringing in the curse, bringing in so much that grieves God the Creator, God out of the goodness of his heart and the love of his eternal being, what does he do? He sends a Redeemer. He sends a Savior to sinful men. He doesn't cast them out of his sight forever. He doesn't cast them under the sentence of death into hell forever. No, what does he do? He takes his own beloved son out of his very own bosom, loved him from all eternity with a love that is incomprehensible to us. But he so loved the world that he gave that son. And he came. What did he come to do? To seek and to save sinners. That's what he came to do. And what did they do when he came? They crucified him. They rejected him. My, when man has sinned against God, and then instead of destroying him and consuming him, he sends him a savior. He sends him a redeemer. His own beloved son, and he looked upon him. This is my beloved son. This is him in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. No, we will not hear him. We reject him. Take him away. Crucify him. And the God of love and mercy and grace, before the Son of God left this world, he commissioned his apostles, go into the whole world and tell them about the Savior. Carry the gospel everywhere, to every race, to every society, to every land. And the gospel is gone, calling sinners to a Savior everywhere. What have they done? What do they deserve? Could God be more patient? 
Could he offer the sinners a better offer? Could he demonstrate his love to any greater extent? He's done everything to make it, to make it known to men his willingness to save them. And yet they reject him and they despise him. And they trample the blood of his son under their feet. Little wonder then the angels witness and say, True and righteous are thy judgments. And God's true and righteous judgments. If the trumpets have been sounding, we've been getting the warning. And I think when we look around, we must feel God's trumpets must have sounded. He's been giving warnings to this land, to this nation, to the nations of the earth. And because the warnings are rejected, and men go on, we're still going to defy God. We're still going to legislate in defiance of God. We're still going to break his commandments. We are going to live immoral lives and we're going to legislate immorality in every conceivable way we can do it. What is heaven's reaction going to be? What happens? They blasphemed God. Now how do you blaspheme God if you don't know God exists. And if you don't know, what's happening is under the influence of heaven, it is the power of God being manifested. You see how hard men have become. God is punishing them for their sin. And as he does... It is a call to repentance. What do they do? They blaspheme. They blaspheme. And you can see it's the spirit of blasphemy that is written uh, across the beast, the dragon, the false prophet, the woman in chapter 17. Names of blasphemy everywhere. Now, my dear friends, what kind of a society do you imagine you would be living in? What would you think it would sound like? What do you imagine would be the atmosphere for a Christian when men have reached that point where they are so utterly defiant of God and of heaven that they blaspheme him. They curse him and they blaspheme him when he's sending judgments that ought to call them to repentance. Now I notice, and with this we close in chapter 13, the beast that rises up out of the sea, and we're not going back to the connection between the beast just now, upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. 
It's as though this is blasphemy incarnate. Blasphemy incarnate. And verse 6. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. There's no fear of God left. Against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Everything connected with God causes him to curse and blaspheme. There is such a hatred of God and everything to do with God. Now you look at the trends in our society and see, see the spirit of men. This very spirit of blasphemy is in every corner of the globe. In every sphere of society. And we are seeing a hardening against God and against his cause. And heaven, as you and I meet here now, heaven is provoked. And God's arm is not shortened. It can see, but it can smite. And this is one of the most solemn chapters in the whole of Scripture. Puny creatures of Adam's race blaspheming God. What will hell be like? What will a lost eternity be like? A hell of eternal blasphemy as men curse God because of their sin. May God solemnize us and bless his truth. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we thank thee we have thy word, however solemn it may be. We are not dealing with men, we are dealing with God. And thou art making it known to us not only what thou art capable of doing, but thou art making known to us what thou wilt do. And may we humble ourselves as thou art giving us time to repent and space to repent. May we seize the opportunity and flee to thyself for divine mercy and evil is to flee to Christ, the only hope for a sinner. Bless thy truth, pardon us, and accept us for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.